Good afternoon. Uh, it's good to see everybody out here. My name is Jesse. I'm one of the pastors here at Zoe Church. If you're new or visiting, we want to welcome you. We're glad you're here. Zoe's a simple church. Okay, we don't do a lot of stuff. We're not that flashy or anything like that. Uh, we're pretty small, so I can tell if you're new. Uh, I look out and I just see you. Um, it's cool. I welcome you. I'm not going to call you out. I went to a church once where they said, if you're new, stand up. Yeah, so this guy's new, this brother. I'll meet you after. Uh, wait around for me. But they said, stand up. And I had actually been to the church twice before, so I was like, okay, I don't think they mean me. But the guy was looking right at me. He's like, if you're new, stand up. One more chance. And I was looking at him, and he was just looking at me, and I never stood up. That's why I moved to Texas. I was so ashamed. I had to get away from that church. Um, but I, we won't make you do that, okay? We're not going to make you do that here. Here, it's just simple. We do want to meet you after. Hopefully, you can stick around. No pressure, though. We want to get to know you. That's one of the benefits of small church that we're not putting on a service, but we're here to gather around God's word as brothers and sisters in Christ. And if you're not a Christian, we want to welcome you too. Uh, I'm, I'm guessing you realize that this is like a Christian thing that we're doing at church. Um, so you can observe and see what we're doing, and hopefully we can kind of show you what it means to be a Christian. Um, again, simple church. So all we do is we open up God's word and we get into it. So if you could open with me in your Bibles to 1 Samuel the book of First Samuel is toward the beginning of the Bible, or at least the first half. We're in chapter 22. Uh, and right now what we're doing is we're going through the books of Samuel. In the original Hebrew, uh, this was one book. First and Second Samuel were one book. So we're going to go through both, First and Second Samuel. We're going to go through pretty much every single word that, that's in these two books, um, chapter by chapter, verse by verse. And we're going about a chapter a week or so. Um, so we're making pretty good time. We're going to be done with 1 Samuel pretty soon. Uh, and then we'll take a little break and then we'll get into 2 Samuel. Um, but we're in 1 Samuel 22. Okay, 1 Samuel 22. Let's look at verse 6 all the way to the end of the chapter. Will you pray with me? Let's pray together. Father, we pray that during this time it would not be my words, but your words. God, what we have in our hands, on our phones, in our laps, it's the sword of the Spirit. It's living and active. God, it's what you have inspired for us. So God, I pray that as we listen, God, as I speak, as we're here gathered together, that we would exalt your word, that we would hear your voice in it, that we would be saved, maybe, that all of us would be transformed. God, we give this time to you. We ask that you would work. Praise in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. We're all here. For, uh, we're all friends here, right? Um, okay, I, it kind of goes against what I said earlier. Some of you are like, I just came here for the first time. Okay, we're not all friends. Right, maybe not. Maybe in the future we'll be best friends. You never know. This could be that faithful day. Write it down, October 3rd. Even though we're not all friends here, I'm still going to ask it because it's kind of a personal thing. What is the most despicable thing that you have ever done? Maybe not the worst thing, maybe not the most objectively evil thing, but what's the most despicable thing? The kind of thing that if you share it, people are like, yeah, you did that? You don't have to share, I will though. And I say this, I know I'm taking a risk. I, I've shared personal stories before about my own sin. And I remember one time one guy came up to me afterwards and he said, wow, you really are a jerk. That's all I said. And uh, I think we're still friends, but we haven't talked in a few years. 
I'll share mine. And you have to understand the background a little to understand why I'm bringing this story up. Growing up, I wasn't the coolest kid. You could act more surprised, but I, I wasn't the coolest kid uh, around. And I was self-conscious, as many kids are. And so whenever I was in a situation with a bunch of other kids, I would get uncomfortable a little bit. And one of the places that was hardest for me, actually, believe it or not, was at church. There were only a few kids my age so that, you know, if someone was new or something, and when I was kind of there, like, you kind of stood out, you know, there weren't that many people to kind of blend in with, and every one of us was super different. Like, even though we grew up together, none of us really clicked or got along with each other that well. We weren't tight. And I have this one specific memory of when I was seven or eight, something around there, uh, and I grew up going to church. My parents are Christian. They taught me a lot about the Bible, which they should do, right? So the Sunday school teacher asked a question. And I knew the answer. And I answered a little too eagerly. Like, I just knew a little, like, too much about this topic. And I was just too, like, you know, like, just, I don't know. It was, like, embarrassing to even think about it. I kind of cringe. Um, but I raised my hand, and I said the answer all fast. And all the other guys were like, oh, okay, smart guy over here knowing all the answers. And if you think about it, okay, okay. So let me just say, from that, that point on, for, like, years, they called me smart guy at church. And you think that'd be good, right? Like, you're smart, intelligent. But if you know the story, you know that they're clowning on me, like, every week, every Sunday. So I felt like, even though it's technically a compliment, I felt like I was getting bullied at church a little bit. So church, for me, was kind of a place with negative connotations, where I felt like people weren't that nice. I didn't fit in. I didn't enjoy it. Part of me hated every Sunday. Now, I share that as backstory, because you think, maybe, that this would have made me more compassionate more kind-hearted. Maybe this was my origin story as a pastor, right? Like, I wanted no kid to feel that way in church. I wanted people to feel the love of Christ like I felt like I didn't feel. But that's not the case. My dad was involved not only in church, but at BSF. Some of you know what that is, Bible Study Fellowship. It's a parachurch organization where they study the Bible. He was a leader there. He brought me and my sisters along to the kid portion of the Bible study. And at this point in my life, I was a little bit older. I was like nine or ten and I was the oldest kid there, or one of the oldest kids there. And there was a kid there, maybe two years younger than me. And he grew up in church, and his parents were Christian, and they taught him a lot about the Bible. And he knew all the answers, and he would answer a little too enthusiastically, a little too eagerly. And I would kind of make fun of him as a smart guy. And I remember one day, this is just one story that sticks out. I remember one day he had left his Bible out on the desk, and for some reason, I decided I was going to take it and hide it from him. I didn't steal it or anything. I already had it in my own Bible, right? But I took it, and I hid it. And I remember he came, and he was looking for it, and he was getting all upset. And he actually cared about the Bible because he's, like, one of those kids, you know, <laughs> unlike how I was. And I remember he was, like, getting really, like, bothered by it. And I felt a little bad at that point. I was like, oh, okay, I better go find it. Like, oh, look, here's your Bible. I found it. But looking back now, thinking over it, even writing it down and sharing it right now, it feels worse to me, as I think about it, than it even did back then. Alexander Solzhenitsyn, he once said, and I read this quote once years ago, but listen to what he says. The line separating good and evil passes not through states, nor between classes, not between political parties either, but right through every human heart and through all human hearts. Now, you might be thinking, okay, you hit a kid's Bible. Hopefully you're thinking this and not judging me too harshly. 
You hit a kid's Bible. That's not the objectively most evil thing that a person can do. And that's true. I didn't murder his family or anything like that. I wouldn't be here if I did. It's not even the worst thing I ever did. In my, it's probably not even the worst thing I ever did at BSF. If you had to quantify it, it's probably somewhat in the middle of bad things I've done. But to me, when I thought about what is the most despicable thing that I've done, it's the first thing that came to mind. I think because looking back, just knowing who I am, it shines the light, the spotlight on how ugly I was in my heart. It really let me know who I really was. It lets me know right now who I really am. But enough about me. What about you guys? You don't have to share it out loud, but hopefully you're thinking about it. Maybe something just popped into your mind right away. What's the most despicable thing you've ever done? And I've been a pastor long enough, maybe not super long, but long enough to know that a lot of people in church carry tremendous guilt. Even if you've been changed, even if you've been, what, 10 years sober or clean or whatever it is, even if that was the old you, you know that you've done some stuff that you want no one in this church to find out about. And you come, you come to a service and people are smiling. They seem like they have it all together. You, knew they, you know they grew up in church, that everything was fine for them. Surely they never did anything that you did. They probably never even heard of the things that you've done. They're good people, quote unquote. A lot of us have so much guilt. And then on the flip side, I think for many of us, especially in church, it's easier to hold bitterness in our hearts than guilt. There's the guilty and then there's the bitter, and I think that's basically everyone in church. You think about the times where you just try to answer the question, and right? you're just trying to tell people about God, and then people made fun of you, and you were bitter about those Christians. You think about the times where other people let you down when they showed their true colors. You think about the myriad problems in your life, the bullies at school, the corruption in the leaders, the crooks who scammed you, the friends who betrayed your trust, the Christians who weren't very Christ-like. It's so easy. I mean, if you just talk to people in church long enough, if you get to know people at a deeper level, if you really get into fellowship with people, you know that a lot of people have been hurt badly, and it sticks with them. That's all real. But can I ask, is it possible that maybe you... Going back to the original question, maybe you are the villain in someone else's story. The setting of our passage today is familiar to the reader of 1 Samuel. If you've been with us the whole time, then all of this will seem familiar. Every place we see is a place we've already been. Gibeah, that's Saul's hometown. When we first met Saul as a young man looking for his father's donkey, setting out on a journey, he was at Gibeah. This is where he's from. Nob, the city of priests, this is the place that we saw last week where David showed up looking for help from the priests of the Lord at the tabernacle. But even though the settings are familiar, the camera here shifts focus away from David for a second and zeroes in on Saul. And we're able to see Saul in a different light in contrast with David. Though Saul is the Lord's anointed, Saul fully embraces his role as villain of the story right here in 1 Samuel 22. This is the major turning point. This is where he crosses the line. And when we look into his eyes, we no longer see that unassuming young man who wanted to please his father. Instead, we look into his eyes and we see a horrific evil, unlike anything we've seen so far in this entire book. And we've seen some bad stuff. 
So we're going to break down this text under three headings, as we do, kind of to make it more manageable. First, we're going to look at it, uh, the first part, the descent. Second, the destruction. Third, the difference. First, the descent. The descent. Going down. Verse 6. Now Saul heard that David was discovered and the men who were with him. And Saul was sitting at Gibeah under the tamarisk tree on the height with his spear in his hand. And all his servants were standing about him. Okay, so what are we seeing here? This is descriptive language. So the author, the text wants us to picture something in our mind's eye. So we see Saul and he's sitting. All his men are standing around him and they're underneath this tamarisk tree. If you don't know what that is, it's kind of a tree that's in the desert. kind of. It kind of looks like a pine tree a little bit, but the leaves are a little bit bigger. Um, it's kind of bushy. Like six, you can get up to like 60 feet. That's what Wikipedia said. Um, I did some research. Did some, look at, looked at some pictures for you guys. But he's sitting under this tree. He's back at his hometown. He's the only one sitting, and everyone else is standing at attention. He looks like a tyrant, honestly. And he's holding his spear. Now, Saul's spear. Saul's spear. Okay, even if you haven't been here, let me just catch you up to speed. Saul was called by God to be the first king of Israel, the very first one. And he was supposed to use his strength and his power to defend Israel against their enemies, against the Philistines and other nations. And he did. In the beginning, he used his spear. He was one of the only people in Israel who had a weapon. He led the people out into victory, and they won a ton of victories. But lately, we haven't seen Saul use his spear against any Philistine or any Ammonite, or anyone from another country. Instead, he's used his spear lately only against who? David, when David's playing music for him, try to spear David right through the wall. Jonathan, most recently, when he felt like Jonathan was betraying him to be on David's side, he's been throwing this spear at not only his own people, but the best of his own people. That spear should be a symbol of God's strength on behalf of his people. Instead, this spear is a symbol of how everything has gone wrong for Saul. And we have to understand that we have something of a gift here in 1 Samuel 22. I've said and I've talked about how the word of God is a mirror for us to not just look at it, but to see ourselves in it. We have to understand that this is a gift because with Saul, we get to see something fall apart in real time. We get to see someone spiral out of control right in front of our faces. And 1 Samuel helps us to understand how and why this kind of thing happens. See, okay, we don't just see Saul at rock bottom. It's not just one chapter. Okay, Saul did this, did that stuff, on to the next guy. We see Saul in free fall for chapter after chapter after chapter. And this is a gift because who hasn't wondered? How do you get from here to there? How do best friends become strangers? How come people who love the church that they used to go to and raved about it and invited friends over, now they don't even want to speak about it? They hate those pastors. How come in every family there are those aunts and uncles that don't get along? You know what I'm talking about? Literally in every family. I mean, these aunts and uncles, they they were siblings in the same house. They have the same DNA, basically. And yet they hate each other. They make family drama happen every single Christmas and Thanksgiving. How do these things happen? They don't happen overnight. You descend slowly, and we see a picture of this in Saul. Verse 7, And Saul said to his servants who stood about him, Hear now, people of Benjamin, will the son of Jesse give every one of you fields and vineyards? Will he make you 
all commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds, and that all of you have conspired against me. Okay, a few details to notice, okay, and then we'll keep moving. But Saul says, okay, notice what he says. He says, hear now people of Benjamin. He's the king of all Israel. There are 12 tribes, but his men, the people that he gathers around him, they're all Benjaminites for the most part. What does that imply? That his circle is getting smaller. His trust is going down and everyone else. I mean, he calls them out for conspiracy. You can tell, I mean, these are the words of a guy who is paranoid. Notice, too, that he doesn't say David's name. He can't bring himself to speak that word, David. He calls him the son of Jesse. It's not because he loves Jesse so much. It's because he hates David. It's a sign of disrespect. Keep reading verse 8. It says, No one discloses to me when my son makes a covenant with the son of Jesse. None of you is sorry for me or discloses to me that my son has stirred up my servant against me to lie in wait as at this day. Okay, so listen to what he's saying. And as we said before, if you listen to someone talk long enough, they will tell you who they are. Listen to what Saul says. He assumes conspiracy, uh, uh, conspiracy, excuse me. He assumes that his men have already turned against him in their hearts. That's why he jumps right into accusations. He doesn't say, who's against me? He says, okay, what did he promise you guys? What's he going to give you guys? Why would you want to follow him? Because obviously you do follow him. Obviously you care more about him. He's mad that Jonathan is friends with David. That's why he's mad. And then he shifts the blame even more to Jonathan. No one tells me when my son stirs up my servant against me as if Jonathan is the one who made David evil. I mean, if you know, if you're just paying attention to what he's saying, this is completely irrational. It doesn't make sense even. I mean, look around you. The actions of the men around you, are they in the wilderness with David? No, they're here with you. They're standing at attention with you. Is it a sin for your son to have friends, especially with your most loyal servant? They became friends after David defeated Goliath on behalf of Saul. What's wrong with that? And then, really, he thinks that Jonathan has stirred up David against him? Jonathan is his son. He's by his side at every battle. Later on in the book, they will die side by side. Jonathan never wavers in his loyalty to Saul. I mean, I think maybe he actually says this because part of him even knows that what he's saying is foolish. He knows that David is the best servant that he has. It's almost like he can't fully bring himself to put all of the blame on David. Surely someone corrupted David or something. Saul is irrational. And notice the one thing I skipped, if you see it in verse 8, right in the middle. He says, none of you is sorry for me. No one is sorry for me. This isn't a meeting. This is not a, a, a kingly like business meeting or a war planning session. This is a pity party. None of you guys care about me. Now, I don't know if any of you guys have ever been invited to someone else's pity party, but it's the worst, okay? I feel like any other kind of party is better. I'd rather go to literally any other kind of party. Nothing you say to that person can make them feel better. In fact, I heard someone, a friend of a friend, talking the other day. So I don't know all the details, and I don't know him super well. I'll keep it anonymous. But he uh, split with his wife, um, and I think he left her... Um, and he was talking about how he had to leave his house, had to get out of his house quickly because their marriage fell apart. And he was complaining about how no one helped him move. At all the stuff to move, at all these boxes, no one helped me. Right? Now, his particular ire was directed against his church. And that caught my attention. He said, I've been part of this church. It wasn't Zoe Church, okay? And if it was, I, w I wouldn't tell you. But uh, it wasn't Zoe Church. 
his ire was directed against his church. He's like, I've been part of this church for years. This is supposed to be my brothers and sisters, and no one came to help me. And then someone pointed out, didn't that, that one guy come and help you? He's like, oh yeah, that one guy did, but no one else came to help me. See, one guy from the church, even though this guy was doing something probably wrong, you know, I don't know the full details, he dropped everything, he reached out to him, he helped him, and you know, he cleared out his schedule, he helped him move these boxes, and he checked in with him. And yet, this one guy is like, no one helped me. That's my story, and I'm sticking with it. See, once the pity party starts, it doesn't matter what the truth is anymore. And you see this in Saul so clearly. It's right here, written on the pages of 1 Samuel for us to learn from. And the reason why, you can see it in, in how Saul reacts and in the words that he says. It's because when you throw this pity party, what happens? No one is sorry for me. No one tells me when these things happen. It's all about you. You know, you've heard the saying, it's my party and I'll cry if I want to. You might have heard that before. Maybe you even said it last birthday. With Saul, with pity parties, it's, it's my party and I'll lie if I want to. And it's not that he's intentionally trying to be a liar here per se. He's not trying to deceive anyone. It's that he's deceiving himself. His whole perception is off. Objective truth is out the window. It doesn't matter how God sees the situation. It only matters how I see the situation. My own subjective take is all there is. And I remember, even from my own personal experience, someone close to me once at dinner was like, you know what, no one cares about me. They just started talking about that at dinner. I was there with like one other person, and this one person ahead of me, there's three of us, no one cares about me, no one would care if I just went away and left forever, no one will miss me, and we're there together, and I'm like, that's not true, right? Like, we're here, like, we're eating dinner with you, I mean, we don't want you to go, but in that moment, I could tell, like, they had already decided what was true to them. That's how they felt. Self-pity is tougher than Kevlar. You just can't get through it, no matter how much you try. You can't puncture through. But let me turn it around on us. Because I know I've done this. But have you done this? Do you ever plan a pity party for yourself? Do you ever go out and buy the balloons and stuff? Have you ever thought to yourself, no one cares about me? Or how about this? None of my friends are as good a friend to me as I am to them. How about I slave away all day at home? Or at work, and then I come home and no one appreciates me at all. There might be some truth, even a lot of truth in these statements, but understand that these exact thoughts are so extreme, always and never, that there's no way they are actually true. And that's what's going on with Saul. He's just speaking out what he feels, but what he feels is out of touch with reality. He's made himself the center. What happened to the humble, likable Saul who first went searching for his father's donkeys? Do you remember that? Even what happened to that doofus Saul that we saw early on who would make these mistakes? He, he did make mistakes. He was acting a fool a lot of times. But he was ignorant. You know, there was a certain kind of innocence even to how he did it. Like, innocent mistake. He wasn't malicious. What about even what happened to the jealous Saul? who, while he resented David and his success, at least you can understand why someone might feel that way when everyone's singing songs about how much better another guy is than you. 
Saul, you changed, bro. And here's the thing with his first point. If you've been reading in context until now, this did not happen overnight. The cracks have been showing for a long time. The descent didn't happen overnight because we've known him so long, we know he wasn't always like this. And this is a warning to us. See, the lesson of Saul, there are many lessons of Saul, but the lesson of Saul right here is don't be so naive to think that you can't become what you hate. You can't, don't be so naive to think that you don't, you can't end up being like Saul or that pity parties are harmless, that lies are fine as long as there's some truth to them. You can't change every day, gradually, for the worse. I mean, we talked about character early on with Samuel, with Saul, with David a little bit. Ralph Waldo Emerson once famously said, he said, sow a thought and you reap an action. Sow an act and you reap a habit. Sow a habit and you reap a character. Sow a character and you reap a destiny. See a little complaining here, a little self-indulgent bitterness there. And you're sowing into your destiny. You see what I'm saying? Your thoughts turn into action. They turn into habits. They turn into character, they turn into who you are, and they turn into who you will become. You know, I think everyone at church, Christian or not, knows that like murder is wrong. If I preached a message against murder, all of you guys would say like, I think I agree with what this guy is saying here. But it almost never starts with a random desire to murder. What did Jesus say in the Sermon on the Mount? It starts with Hatred in your heart, same thing as murder. Maybe you just don't murder people because you're too weak or you're too scared. You know, adultery is wrong, but if I said, don't cheat on your spouse, all my Christians here would agree. But adultery is unfortunately not super rare, even in church. Why? Because it starts small. And you hear it sometimes. Sometimes you talk to people, some of your friends, Christian brothers or sisters or cousins, whatever. What's going on with your marriage? Why are you leaving your wife? And it's like, well, you know what? Because they, they treated me this way. And, you know, I have, have had to put up with this so long. And we've been fighting. It, it happens gradually. It's a little bit of lust or pride or discontentment or unchecked anger. And I say this pastorally because I know some of you guys are far from rock bottom. And yet, you're on your way. Verse 9. Then answered Doeg the Enamite, who stood by the servants of Saul, I saw the son of Jesse come to Nob, to Ahimelech the son of Ahidah. And he inquired of the Lord for him and gave him provisions and gave him the sword of Goliath the Philistine. So Doeg is an Edomite, he's not a Benjamite, he's not an Israelite, he's not from Israel, he's not technically under King Saul, he's a gun for hire, you could say. He was at the tabernacle when David showed up, he saw what went down. And we're about to see that this isn't just about working on yourself. That's not why I'm bringing this up. There are real consequences sometimes to when you spiral out of control. And this leads to the second point, second heading, the second part of this passage. First, the descent. We see Saul's fall. Second, we see the fallout of that fall, the destruction. The destruction. There are times when you know that if you step forward, there's no going back. Right? I think some of you guys know this, especially if you've fallen into really bad sin in your life. There was a moment where, you know, you knew that if I cross this line, things are going to change. Things are going to change. I remember being like six years old, and I grew up in church again, right, Christian parents. I was taught at a certain age 
not to say certain things. I didn't even know what cuss words were back then, so it wasn't like, don't cuss like a sailor, but it was more like, don't say rude or mean things. You know, like I remember they said, don't tell anybody I hate you. Right? It's so messed up. Don't say shut up or anything like that. I remember being really angry sometimes as a little kid, and I wanted to say to some people, I hate you, but then I was like, no, I can't. Right? It's too evil. I can't say such a curse upon my fellow human being made in the likeness of God. But I remember the first time I said it. It was actually last week, uh, 35 years, and I said it to Satan too, but nah, I'm just kidding. It was when I was six, okay, like I said in the beginning. I was at the playground, and my friend Richard was there, and uh, Richard, I don't know what he did. We were playing. He must have said something mean to me or tripped me or something, and I remember I was so enraged, and I was like, I, I, and I was like stammering. I was like, no, don't say it. Inside, like the little angel and devil or whatever, like, don't say it, and he's like, say it. You know you want to say it. And I was like, I hate you, right? I said, I hate you. And he was like, okay, whatever, man. And he just ran away. It didn't really affect him too much, to be honest, because who cares if Jesse hates you, right? But something changed in me. Because for me, that had always been the line, right? Don't cross that line. And every time after that, it was easier and easier to cross more lines. That was one of the first of many lines that I've crossed in my life. And a couple of you guys, I know you know this. You cross those lines. And here we see Saul cross the line. I mean, really, we've seen Saul cross many lines so far. He was spear at his own son. But here he crosses a line that for most human beings, this is impossible to come back from. Verse 11. Then the king sent to summon Ahimelech the priest, the son of Ahidab, and all his father's house, the priests who were at Nob, and all of them came to the king. So he's summoning them. You know something bad is about to go down. Verse 12, and Saul said, Here now, son of Ahidab. And he answered, Here I am, my lord. Again, the disrespect. He doesn't say his name. This is the high priest. He's disrespecting the high priest. There's something about who Saul has become. The arrogance. Verse 13, and Saul said to him, Why have you conspired against me? Okay, so he's not even asking for an explanation. Explain why you're wrong. You and the son of Jesse, in that you have given him bread and a sword and have inquired of God for him so that he has risen against me to lie in wait as at this day. Again with the conspiracy talk. But let's go back to last chapter for a second. David lied. Do you remember this? David shows up and he's like, I need help, Ahimelech. And Ahimelech's like, okay, okay, what's going on? He's scared and he says, don't worry, things are cool with me and Saul. I'm on a mission for Saul. He lied to him. Here Ahimelech shows up and clearly things are not cool. They're not fine. Ahimelech is finding out the hard way that Saul is very, very angry at David. He accuses the high priest of conspiring against him, and he's the king. So what do you call that? Conspiracy against the king? Treason. A couple of verses ago, it was all Jonathan's fault. Now it's all Ahimelech's fault. Saul is on the lookout for enemies. Let me just say, this is for free, but beware the person who always has an enemy. Beware that person who always has an enemy. Focus on someone else as being the cause of all their problems. I beware people who come to our church and say, I've been to 5,000 different churches and all of them were terrible. I hate them. They're evil. I'm like, well, this is 5,001. But actually what I say is, nice to meet you. Have you met Eric? <laughs> beware that person who always has an enemy. Because it's only a matter of time. Yeah, I know, I put it on Eric, it's messed up. It's only a matter of time before you're next. 
And for our purposes today, it's not totally a side note. Even more than that, beware becoming that person. Beware becoming Saul. Saul is painted in the most negative light possible in this chapter. Beware becoming this guy who is so paranoid, who is always blame-shifting, other people always accusing. Verse 14, then Ahimelech answered the priest. I mean, he's confused. He's like, who among all your servants is so faithful as David, who is the king's son-in-law? and captain over your bodyguard, and honored in your house. I mean, David is like the best person. This poor fool, though, tries to reason with Saul. He doesn't see the crazy in his eyes. Keep reading. Verse 15. It's today the first time that I've inquired of God for him. No, let not the king impute anything to his servant or to all the house of my father, for your servant has known nothing of all this, much or little. Now, everything he says, 100% true. In fact, if you go back in time a little bit, Jonathan used a very similar argument to dissuade Saul from doing things that he would regret. You remember? He said, wait, wait, don't. David is good. Don't you remember all he's done for us? He killed Goliath. He's on your side. And it worked last time. Ahimelech tries to use reason. He tries to use the truth. But remember, Saul has on the self-pity Kevlar vest against truth. Verse 16, and the king said, you shall surely die. That escalated quickly, at least out loud. But you know that this has been bubbling up in Saul for a long time. You shall surely die, Ahimelech, you and all your father's house. He's going to kill all the priests of God. Now just stop here for a moment and consider what is happening. The king of God is going to kill the priests of God. Why? Because they helped the other king of God. Saul just doesn't care. His conscience is so seared. It's like crispy. Who cares what the reasons are? Who cares what the consequences are? I'm going to do what I feel like doing right now. And that's really it. I mean, isn't that kind of how all sin is? I don't care what this is going to lead to. I don't care what came before. I'm just going to do it. That fruit, it looks so good to the taste, I'm just going to eat it. Who cares what God said? I mean, you guys know this, okay? You know it. I'm just going to say these words, even though I know that they're going to destroy this relationship. I'm just going to keep going out with this coworker again and again and again. We're going to have lunch, and then we're going to have dinner, and then we're going to sneak around because I just want to. Everyone's telling you it's a bad idea. Your brother sat you down and said, hey, look, I think you're on a path to destruction, but you didn't care. I'm just going to give in to all these temptations that have been plaguing me for years. I've talked to enough people to know there's always this moment of, I don't care anymore. And search your own heart for a second. If there's even just a sliver of I don't care in your heart, that could be fatal. Verse 17, and the king said to the guard who stood about him, turn and kill the priests of the Lord, because their hand also is with David. And they knew that he fled and did not disclose it to me. But the servants of the king would not put out their hand to strike the priests of the Lord. I mean, it's crazy. You're going to kill the priests of the Lord just because they didn't help you kill David? They don't want to do it. So, uh, so Saul turns to the gun for hire, verse 18. And the king said to Doag, you turn and strike the priest. And Doag the Edomite turned and struck down the priest. And he killed on that day 85 persons who wore the linen ephod. It's a slaughter right there. 85 priests died. 
85 men who were dedicated to the service of the Lord. 85 men who had done nothing except help one of Saul's servants named David. And this would be bad enough, but verse 19, And Nob, the city of priests, he put to the sword. He sends Doag out to, to Nob, both man and woman, child and infant, ox, donkey, and sheep, he put to the sword. See, it's the irony here. It's the irony here that's most telling, I think. It's the irony that reveals the depths of his depravity, kind of how low he's gone. The destruction is horrific. It would be bad even in isolation, even in a vacuum. But it's the irony that shows us the destruction of Saul's very own soul itself. Because if you remember, why did Saul get disqualified as king? I mean, he did that offering thing that was bad. But the real thing was that God had called him on a mission. Do you remember? There was an evil people. And God called Saul as his anointed king to carry out his judgment and his wrath. It was hard to stomach. God said, wipe out these people completely, kill all the animals, don't leave anything, no spoils of war, nothing. But it taught us something about ourselves. What we deserve as sinners before a holy God, this was a holy war. But Saul, what did he do? He showed up, he killed all the men, but he saved the king, he saved the spoils of war for himself. And when Samuel called him out, he made excuses. Oh, I saved this stuff to sacrifice. He didn't follow through on God's command. And maybe you thought, okay, he doesn't want to do this violence. He doesn't want to kill people. But when it's not God's mission, but it's his mission, what does he do? He kills every single person, even down to the infants. When Saul had to wield the sword for God, he failed to follow through. But here, when it's for himself, when it's his wrath against these whom he has perceived have rebelled against him, his thoroughness is complete. And it's not just... Regular people, it's innocent priests. It's the priests of the Lord. They don't belong to him. Ultimately, they are gods. As one commentator I read this past week, or maybe two weeks ago, said, it's like Saul has declared holy war against God himself. And that's what he's done. But here's the thing. When we turn against God, whether it's in as egregious a fashion as this, or it's in other ways, more innocuous ways in our own minds, isn't that really the same kind of thing? Maybe we don't have as much power or as much strength. Maybe we don't have the opportunity. But when we tell God to his face, no, I'm not going to do that. Not your will be done, but my will be done. Is that not holy war against God? You know, the Apostle Paul, I mean, Apostle John, excuse me, wrote in the book of 1 John. 1 John 2.18. Here are these words. He said, children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. And in church, when you hear that word Antichrist, normally you hear like some calculations or some predictions about who it might be. Some world leader that is tricking everybody, might be a sociopath, some malevolent James Bond type villain. But did you hear John and these? Words that he said, so now many antichrists have come. Literally, antichrist is just two words put together in Greek. Anti, which means against. Christ, which means, well, Christ is the Greek translation of the Hebrew word Messiah, which means anointed one. The Lord's anointed. See, if you trace all of this back, everything was solved. Where did it start? 
with hatred and jealousy for David, who is who? The Lord's anointed. Saul is literally an antichrist here. He is against everything that David is. Is he the Antichrist? No, he's not. That's in the future. Okay, we can talk about that some other time when we preach Revelation or something like, you know, Thessalonians, whatever. But he is literally an Antichrist. He is against God's anointed. And look at the destruction. And if you've been reading the same story I have by now, you realize, don't you, that the Antichrist, he could be anybody. Don't just look for the most evil person, okay, the guy who looks evil on his face. He could be me. He could be you, at least lowercase a. In fact, if you are functioning as an antichrist, uh, in fact, we are functioning as antichrist when we in our sin declare ourselves to be the center of reality, when we put ourselves as kings of the universe, when we usurp God's role on the throne of our hearts, we're acting like an antichrist when we turn against God's will and we seek our own will. We're acting like the antichrist when we do anything that's destructive against God's people, when our own self-pity or bitterness turns us against the people that God called us to love, and instead we turn in hate. John wrote in 1 John 4, 3, the spirit of the antichrist is already in this world, and we see that spirit in Israel, in Saul. And if you look in the mirror of 1 Samuel 22, it's definitely possible that the spirit of the Antichrist is in this room, it's in your heart maybe, that it's been in my heart. Again, not a statement on eschatology. The final Antichrist will be the embodiment of evil. But what I am saying here is that we need to rethink because with Saul, you can see the line. You see the spiral. It doesn't start with, I'm going to become pure evil. It starts with, this guy is getting praises, and I don't like that. People like this guy more than me. Jealousy, envy, complaining, bitterness in your heart. You don't think those things are a big deal. Look at the destruction that they lead to. It's like what the Apostle James said in James 3, 5. He says, how great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And he was just talking about words that we speak. So think about yourself even now. I know this is uncomfortable. But think about how evil you could be. You have been. Even you are. Think about how much destruction is left behind in your wake because of your sin. And just be honest and real about it. How many relationships, for example, have been destroyed because... Gossip from your tongue, set it on fire. How much damage have you done to the soul of your spouse with your criticism? How much violence have you done to your own integrity with your own lies and broken promises with your half-truths? Some of us are on the path to destroying not, our, not only our own lives, but a lot of other people as well. Some of us already have, and this leads to the final point. We'll do this quickly. The final point, we saw the descent of Saul. We've been seeing that for a while, really. We saw the destruction where it has led to. Now, finally, back to David. Third point, the difference. See, this story in, in 1 Samuel 22 is mostly about Saul, actually, which is surprising because almost everything has been about David recently. Okay, David has taken center stage in 1 Samuel. 
And really, the point of bringing up Saul is to set up Saul as a contrast to what we've seen in David already. David is the main character, but they're held up in comparison. And the thing is, just the past few weeks, we've seen that David looks a lot like Saul in kind of a disconcerting way. Right? Because Samuel said, I'm going to raise, God says, I'm going to raise up a man who's better than you, Saul. So you expect someone who's totally different, who's like night and day with Saul, but then David shows up. And remember Saul, he was the tallest guy in Israel, he was good looking, he made a good impression. And then David shows up, and he's still young, so he's not the tallest guy, but he's good looking, he makes a good impression. Saul's a good warrior, that's why everyone likes him, why they rally behind him. And then David, at first you're like, oh, he's a musician, right? He's a sensitive, like, emo guy. Uh, But turns out he's a good warrior too. And then last chapter, if you remember, we see David start to stumble and crack under the pressure of all of Saul's persecution. It's his lies and compromises that contributed to what went down in 1 Samuel 22. In so many ways, he's looking more and more like Saul. So verse 20. But one of the sons of Ahimelech, the son of Ahidab, named Abiathar, escaped and fled after David. And Abiathar told David that Saul had killed the priest of the Lord. Okay, so the scene is building up in parallel fashion. And you love how the narrator does this because we've seen Saul and David start to parallel each other. And here we see what? A priest arrives to where the king is and he speaks what happened. When it was Ahimelech and Saul... When Ahimelech said what happened, Saul accused him and condemned him, and it led to all this destruction. But here, when it's Abiathar and David, when he asks him what happened, and when he tells him what happened, instead of flipping out, instead of going into a rage, even against Saul, that he's going to pay for what he did, I'm going to get vengeance. How dare he lift his unworthy hands against the priest of the Lord? Listen to David in verse 22. And David said to Abiathar, I knew on that day when Doeg the Edomite was there, that he would surely tell Saul, I have occasioned the death of all the persons of your father's house. And that's it. You see them walking step by step. You almost fear that if David keeps on this path, he's going to end up at the same place as Saul. But here he makes a hard pivot. He turns 180. And what do we call that theologically? Repentance. But Saul, the priest, shows up, the king condemns, and then the king destroys. With David, the priest shows up, the king confesses, and then verse 23, he says, Stay with me, do not be afraid, for he who seeks my life seeks your life. With me you shall be in safekeeping. With David, the priest shows up, the king confesses, and then the king promises to put his own life on the line to protect him. And it's that thing in the middle. When Saul hears the truth, he condemns. When David hears the truth, when he hears about how bad things have spiraled out of control, what does he do? He is convicted. See, we have to understand, David is not better than Saul in terms of what he does. That's maybe what we expect, that he would be this righteous man, as opposed to Saul who is disobedient. Spoiler alert, but David is going to do worse things than Saul ever did, honestly. He's a more despicable person in so many ways, honestly. So what makes him a better man, quote-unquote, than Saul? What makes him better? It's that when David sins, and he does sin really bad, when David sins, he repents. The old Puritan Matthew Henry said about this text, he said, It is great trouble to a good man 
to find himself any way that causes evil to others. He must have been much pained when he considered that his falsehood was one cause of this fatal event. Did you hear what he said? He said, a good man. What makes David a good man isn't that he's sinless. Clearly not. He was lying and stuff last chapter. It's that when he sins, he owns it. Did David kill the priest? No. Did he command Doeg? No. Did he even do this willingly? Did he knowingly bring the priest into it? Not exactly. But for the lie that he told, for the maybe unintended consequences of his own misstep, he's broken up. See, friends here, it's a sign of maturity. When something bad happens, it's a sign of the seed of real Christianity growing and bearing fruit in your life. Then when bad things happen, you take responsibility for whatever you did wrong. Because you're the one who did it. It's so much easier to look at the speck in someone else's eye than to deal with the log in your own eye. You might be responsible for 10% even of a conflict, but that 10% is what you did. The speck in your own eye even, if you flip it, should be more egregious to you than the log in anyone else's. Because it's your eye. David repents, and we see this in how he repents. He was being selfish. When he lied to the priest, he was caring about his own hide more than theirs. He put them in danger because he was scared. He wanted to get away. But here in verse 23, we see him do a complete 180. He says, stay with me. I'll protect you. I'll put my own self on the line for yours. And we'll close with this. You might be wondering, okay, what's the answer? Okay, just repent. Just turn around. I get that. We've talked about that before. What's the answer? Just stop and change. Don't do those things anymore. What about the things I've done in my past? What about how I feel about it? What about the guilt? Well, if you're really thinking through the implications of this text, you probably want a little bit more guidance. So here it goes. I'll go back to the original story. That kid, I was thinking about it recently, and I asked my dad, I said, do you remember this one kid? And he was like, not really. <laughs> he was like, well, you remember him, right? And I was like, do you remember his dad or his last name? So I could try to find him, and he's like, nope. So this kid is lost to time to me, unless in the sovereignty of God something crazy happens, and he finds me, I'm never going to find him. But even if I could find him and talk to him, and I still hope I can someday, I can't undo what I did. If on the off chance it really hurt him, I can't go back and change the past 25 some odd years. Personally, though, I'm guessing that it probably didn't hurt him that bad. He had the joy of the Lord, you know? Kind of like when I told Richard that I hated him, it probably didn't affect him at all. It was more about what it revealed about me. It was me crossing that line, you know? It's me leaning into that ugliness, me acting out on the sinful tendencies of my heart. Objectively, it's not the worst thing that I've done, it's just the most despicable because of what it kind of unearthed deep inside my own soul. And the thing is, we live in a world today where forgiveness is hard to come by. You know, people complain about and talk about cancel culture. People get canceled for things they said decades ago. You're held to the worst things that you've ever done. Even in church, the stigma of your past can stay with you for a long time, even though you're technically a Christian now. But that's not how it is truly with God. And, you know, I've been thinking about this for the past few months. It's funny how God works. I'm not reading into this anything more than what I'm saying. But I'm just saying in the sovereignty of God, 
Don't you think it's kind of weird and funny that over a thousand years after this, another guy named Saul shows up on the pages of history? Same tribe too, Benjamin. And he's not, we don't know how tall he was. He was probably short, maybe, who cares? We don't know. But head and shoulders, metaphorically, he was way above all of his peers in gifting and in zeal and religiosity. He was a gifted person. A man named Saul of the tribe of Benjamin rises up and we see him spiral. He's raised up, learning about God, learning the Torah, wanting to be righteous, but hate, hatred for Jesus and the way of Christ consumes him and he starts going down this terrible path. When we're introduced to him, he's presiding over someone's murder, the stoning of Stephen. In his hatred against Christians, he asked the high priest for permission to go to Damascus to take Christians and put them in jail, men and women. You see in this new Saul the evil that human beings are capable of. Really what you see is the spirit of the Antichrist rising up again against Jesus Christ, the Lord's anointed. And yet we see Saul hit the road to persecute even more Christians. He's getting worse and worse. But then Jesus himself appears to him on that road. And maybe you know the story. But everything changes for this Saul. And let me read to you in Titus chapter 3, in Saul's own words, what he said. He said, For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us. This book is a mirror. And we are all souls. But Jesus, He saves and redeems. He washes us clean with His blood. He takes the record of all our wrongs and nails them to his cross. He transforms us to be more like him. Sorry, this only happens when I talk about Corey Ten Boom usually. <clears throat> but friends, I would, ur- I would urge you to take your despicable things, your despicable self, to the cross. Whatever path you're on, Jesus can make you new. I promise you. Will you bow your heads with me? Father, we are so thankful that though we are sinners and we fall short of your glory, there is salvation and grace in Jesus Christ. God, I pray that as we eat this bread and drink from this cup, that we would proclaim his death, that we would proclaim what he did, that we would proclaim everything that we have received in the name of Jesus. We praise him in Christ's name. Amen.